not quite ready to give, uh, say farewell to summer yet, but uh, uh, we do need to, to admit that we are, we are drawing, uh, our summer is drawing uh, soon to a close. And uh, through this summer, we've been looking at the life of Gideon and talking about, uh, talking about the courage to lead. Uh, we've seen how courage comes from an encounter with God, that God can actually give us the courage to do some things that we would otherwise not do. Uh, God can give us courage to face our demons, uh, to follow him, uh, to see his victory. Uh, we've seen uh, how God can lead us into some really important battles for some of the uh, really important things in life. There's a problem, though, uh, a problem with that, having that courage to face some battles because with that courage sometimes can come a, the courage to walk into some battles that we really have no place in. There's some battles that we really shouldn't be taking on. And uh, this passage uh, today uh, surprisingly uh, deals with that. It helps us to uh, have some discernment about uh, about some of those battles and, and some of the mispl misplaced courage that sometimes we can have. Uh, Sam Burgess is a, a British rugby player, and he is, for me, a very courageous person. He, he was uh, competing in a national championship, and in the first tackle of the match, he broke his cheekbone and his eye socket. Continue to play big game. He said, I've got to have some courage here, and, and he continued to play for the rest of the game. That took an, uh, an incredible amount of courage. But when we've been talking about spiritual courage, that's, that's not the courage that we've been talking about. Uh, Tiger Woods, uh, in the U.S. Open in 2008, he broke his leg, tore his ACL, and went, went on to play for another 91 holes and won the tournament incredible courage. That's not the courage that we're talking about, though. Uh, another man by the name of Brett, uh, Bert Troutman was in a soccer final with Manchester City in 1956. He was a goalie. And if you've watched soccer games, you know that they have to make these diving, uh, diving saves. And sometimes there's an attacker coming in, and they're, they're trying to get at the ball as well. And Bert Troutman made the dive, connected with the knee of the uh, attacking forward, and he was knocked unconscious, broke his spine. Uh, he had uh, a, a split, one of his vertebrae in two, and later they found out the, the only reason he didn't die from that broken vertebrae was that there was another broken vertebrae that was pressing against it in the opposite direction and spared his life. He went on to play the remaining 17 minutes of that match. He was named that year Footballer of the Year. They won the championship. It was, it was in one sense, an incredible act of courage. That's not the courage that we're talking about, though. Uh, we, we're talking about the spiritual courage to face the battles that God would call us to. God doesn't give us courage to fight any and every battle. Uh, I'm convinced there are some battles God is completely ambivalent about. He really, uh, whether, whether the Yankees or the Red Sox win, win uh, the World Series this year, 
I'm not sure God really cares. Uh, whether Cristiano Ronaldo takes the Ballon d'Or again this year, I'm not sure God is really all that concerned. And there are many battles that God is ambivalent towards. There are also many battles that God doesn't really want any part of, doesn't have any desire for us to enter into, wants us to drop them. And when we call on him for his courage to face them, often it is with a sense of misplaced courage. We are asking God to lead us into battles that we really uh, have, have no place in to begin with. And again, today's passage addresses those. It helps us to look at some of the big things in our life, some of the battles, some of the fights that we take on, and ask ourselves the question, is this the Lord's battle, or is this just my battle? Is this something that the Lord wants me to, to, to fight on? Because this is, this is really important. This is, this is crucial for, uh, for what he's seeking to do in my life and in this world. Or is this just something that I, I just found myself in a fight that I don't really think the Lord called me into? And it's more about my name than it is about his. If you have your, if you have your Bibles with you today, I'd encourage you to turn with me to Judges. Uh, we are in the home stretch here. We're in chapter 8. And I'm going to read uh, today's passage uh, from verses 13 down to verse 28. It, it shows how uh, through Gideon, we can learn misplaced courage can lead us into the wrong battles and helps us to discern, is it the Lord's battle or is this just my battle? Verse 13. Then Gideon the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harry's. And he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. He wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the, t the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. And he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. 
besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. This is the word of God. Now, if you're new, you, we, we, we have seen through the life of Gideon, he started off as a very timid character. Uh, he would hide from his enemies. He was afraid of people's opinions. And God met him because he wanted to work through him. And so what God did through his, his promises, his provisions, through his grace in Gideon's life, he found courage. God slowly gave that to him, and God used Gideon to bring deliverance to the Israelites. But as then Gideon got into some, the, the battle that God had led him into and had courage to face that, then he started wandering into some other battles that he had no place in. He started taking on some enemies and some fights that God didn't lead him into. And in fact, the, Lord, the Lord's guidance is absent, notably, from this passage. What we see happening in verse 13 is Gideon walking into one of those fights. He's harboring a grudge against the people of Succoth. Uh, Succoth was a town, they, when Gideon was chasing after the Midianites, he was exhausted, his men were exhausted, they needed help. They stopped off in Succoth and said, please feed us, give us some food to, and supply us so we can continue the fight. And at that point, the people, the leaders in Succoth said, Boy, it sure doesn't look like there's a lot of people with, with Gideon, and Midian is so strong, we support him. They, just, they, they didn't know how this was all going to turn out. They chose not to choose sides, and Gideon felt slighted by it. So when the battle was over, he's going to return and let them know what he thinks of them. He captures one of the towns, townspeople, and we don't know whether he was waterboarding or some other interrogation, but he comes up with the names of the entire town council, 77 men. And he uses that list that he's gotten from the men to hunt them down. In verse 15, you see the heart of Gideon's grudge. You think, is there something in their character? Is there something, some, something that the Lord has led him into this battle in some way? No, he gives his reason in verse 15. It's because you taunted me. You didn't support me. You didn't, he, he felt insulted by them. He felt let down by them. You taunted me. But God's battles aren't about personal insults. When a battle is rooted in a grudge, it becomes a battle about our pride, not about the Lord. Feels to me a little bit like, if you've ever watched the, the Back to the Future series, you got Marty McFly, and he's a fairly easygoing guy until someone calls him chicken, right? It, it, it shows up in every, every one of the, the movies. He'll just be going along. Someone will call him chicken, and he'll like do a double take, and he'll be like, nobody calls me chicken. And then something disastrous ensues, right? He goes launching into battle, and he's up against some, in a fight against someone who is uh, way stronger, way more powerful, and, and all kinds of, 
uh, things typically fall apart at that point. And that's typically what happens when we wander into fights that are mostly rooted in our pride and in personal insult. So God's battles aren't about personal insults. They aren't also about teaching people a lesson either. We see that from Gideon. He flies into a tantrum over the way he was insulted, and he takes the elders, and in verse 16 it says he tor- he, he's torturing them with desert thorns and briars. The, the leaders of this town would have been left bleeding and scarred, and, and that was the point, to, to inflict maximum pain on them, to get back at them, and it says to teach them a lesson. When he reaches the city of Penuel, where, when he had been similarly insulted by them, they hadn't stood by him. When he gets to that city, he brings down the tower, and it says he kills the men of that city. And so Gideon, who is sometimes, we, we, we thought, oh, maybe he's a hero. Maybe he's someone that we can look to for, uh, as, a, as a trusted and respected leader. We see Gideon, first time in the book of Judges, he turns his sword against fellow Israelites. Instead of being that one that started off as Jeroboam, one who contends with Baal, now he's become one who contends with his brothers, who contends with fellow Israelites. God's battles aren't about teaching people a lesson. They're also not about your reputation. In verse 18, Gideon comes to the Midianite kings, Ziba and Zalmunna, and he starts by forcing a confession from them. Then in verse 19, he says, when, when they, ad, they admit that he, they had killed these, uh, the, these uh, other warriors, Gideon says, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. And he says very clearly there, he's showing his motivation, this is about my personal revenge. I am out to get you. You did me wrong. I will do you wrong also. He would have let them live, but if they touched his family, they had to die. Again, it comes down to his pride. It's his his reputation, the honor of his family. He will not bear an insult against that. The Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so often we will find ourselves in a fight, in a battle, and we want to pray and call upon God's help to, 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 to lead us into it and to, to see a, a successful outcome from this battle that we've taken on. But the verse reminds us that if the battle is about our pride, God is not our ally. He will actually stand in our way. He will, become, he will stand in opposition to us. He becomes one who would uh, seek to frustrate us. Even when we feel like we've, we've won the battle. If the battle was about our pride, the Lord will rob our peace. He will rob our joy because it's not a, ba- a battle that God would have us uh, to, to take on or, or to learn those lessons from. That's why in Philippians 2.3 it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The battle's about your pride, we drop the battle. If it's about me, if it's about my battles, not the Lord's battles, we walk away from the battle. Nothing good can come from it. 
So if you're fighting for your pride, it's not the Lord's battle. It's also not the Lord's battle if you're fighting for your pleasure, comfort. If it's mostly about more stuff, mostly about you and and what you can get, it's probably not the Lord's battle. This comes out as Gideon returns to his people. And if you're here with us for the first time this, today and you're not that familiar with Gideon's story, the, the, the statement that the people make in verse 22 may seem completely reasonable. But listen to what they say. They say to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And if you've been tracking with us and learned anything about the life of Gideon, you're like, Gideon saved them from the hand of Midian? Like, really? What did did Gideon really do? How is he he the hero in this story? The problem with the statement is that God had been doing, right from chapter 6, spiritual backflips to convince the people of Israel, this is not Gideon's doing. It wasn't Israel's doing. He was the one who had accomplished this victory. God had reduced their numbers so that there would be 450 to 1 odds against Israel as they went into battle. And he said, I need to do that because otherwise they'll think it's them. They'll take credit for it. And that's what they did. God brought about a victory with, with, with great artillery and, and, and superior resources. No, he sent them into battle with torches, uh, with trumpets, and God threw the enemy army into confusion and they started attacking themselves. It's the Lord's victory. It was always the Lord's victory. And we saw last time that as they went into that battle, Gideon said, when you get right up close, I'm going to give the signal and everybody let out a shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. And it seems as we get to chapter 8 that it was that for Gideon part that they seem to latch on to. We love to take credit for God's victories. We love to take credit for what he has done. We love to give credit to people, the credit that really God alone deserves. We also like to spiritualize our avoidance of responsibility. And I I don't know if there's a better example in all of Scripture of someone doing this than we see with Gideon. The people asked Gideon to lead them because they thought he's the one who saved us from the Midianites. They want him to be in charge. And they say, not only you, but then your son, your grandson, we want to kind of set up a little dynasty here. And we're hoping at that point that Gideon will say, no, 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 I I wasn't the one who, who won this victory. It was the Lord that won the victory. We want him to give credit to God and to serve the people in whatever way, whatever way might be appropriate. Well, what Gideon instead does, takes credit for the victory for himself, and says, uh, leadership, serving, taking over responsibility after the, this victory, uh, that's not something I'm really interested in. But just turning down an opportunity to serve, uh, that never feels too... Uh, too spiritual. So he spiritualizes his rejection of their request. He turns them down, but in a way that would make him seem very pious and religious. Look at what he says in verse 23. He says, the Lord will rule over you. 
And we're thinking, yeah, we know that the Lord will rule over you, but maybe, Gideon, you could step up and do something. Maybe there's, maybe there's some way that you could come along and uh, serve, in, in, in serve the people. God has called you into this battle. He'd called you into this victory. Surely now there might be some way that you could uh, serve him as a faithful servant. So often we want to get out of responsibility but spiritualize it. Make it sound like we're, we're just, we haven't really discerned, that's, that, that, I've, I haven't really discerned that that's the Lord's will for me. And so we say no to the responsibility and look for ways to make it sound more spiritual. We want to make it sound like it's the Lord's idea when mostly it's about our comfort. Mostly it's about our pleasure. We also like the privileges of leadership without the responsibilities of it. This is crazy how Gideon responds here. The people have asked him to lead them as their king, and he says, no, 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 I I don't think that's the Lord's will, guys. I I think that the Lord should be your, your leader. But then watch what he does. In verse 26, he asks for a gold earring from everyone. Go go around, collect up all of these gold gold earrings. And at this point, I'm thinking, Gideon, if you're saying that it's the Lord that's going to lead them, then shouldn't the Lord get some of this gold? Like, why are you collecting it? It's like uh, taxation without representation at a whole different level. Like, he, he wants all of these privileges of leadership just doesn't want to do anything. He's collecting about 3,400 earrings here weighing some 20 kilograms of gold. It's a king sum. Again, he wants the privileges of leadership, not so interested in doing anything in return. Then later in the verse, he's gathering up the purple garments worn by the Midianite kings. He gets these crescent-shaped uh, decorations from the camels. He's collecting all of the things that you would use if you wanted to look like a king, but he's saying, please don't expect me to do anything. I'm not going to actually be a king. In verse 30, we see that he's established a royal harem, and he has some 70 sons. Then finally, in verse 31, we learn he has a concubine, and that concubine bears him a son whom he names Abimelech. Now, Abimelech might seem to you like, well, that's, that's about as good a name as any other. Unfortunately, the word Abimelech, literally, it's, it's my father is king. So here's a guy who says, no, 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 I, I don't want to be the king. Really, the Lord is your king. He doesn't want to uh, be a king, but he wants to be paid like a king, dressed like a king. He wants to have wives like a king, and then he names his son my father is king. I, I, I think this is your, about as strong an example of, hey, I want all the privileges of leadership. I just don't want the responsibilities. Don't want to take that on. And so I guess when I look at this, I think when the battle is over, then you see what you were really fighting for. When you've been calling out to God and asking him to do something in your life and and you've been pleading with him for his help and his mercy, you've asked him to act and you've seen him respond, it's at that point that we see what the battle was all about in our mind, what we were really fighting for. Does it 
When, when God answers and God brings relief, when God brings victory in some battle that you're facing, does it move you to worship? Does it move you to, to, to have a, a desire to, to thank God and to praise God and, and recognize his place in your life in a whole new way? Does it move you to serve him, to say, well, why, why did you do this? Why, why show such mercy in my life, God? What is it that you wanted me to do? What have you spared me to accomplish? How can I now respond with my life in response to all that you've, that you've done? Is that the response of your heart? Or is the response one of relief? Well, that sure feels a lot better now. Now I can just be comfortable. Now I can just relax. Maybe, maybe take credit for, 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 for what happened. Maybe pat myself on the back and, and, and treat myself because it's all over now. And, and surely the fact that everything worked out is a sign that God was, uh, thought that I'm a really stand-up guy and, and it was mostly about how wonderful I am. Is that where your mind goes? Is that where you think? I, I think it is after the battle that we find out what was really in our heart, what the, what the fight was really all about. Jesus told a story about a man who had won some battles. He, he had won some financial battles. He was a farmer. And one year, he had so, so much uh, in, in terms of his crops, he didn't know what to do with it all. He had, like, way too much. And he looked at all, and he didn't say, hmm, I wonder why God is blessed me so much. I wonder, I wonder how, 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 why God has given me more than I could possibly ever use. He didn't think to ask, I wonder if there are people that I could serve with this. I wonder if there's a way that I could serve God with this, glorify his name with this. None of those things occurred to him. Instead, he said, boy, I don't know what to do with all this grain. I, I'm better tear down the barns that I have and build bigger barns. And then he adopted a new life statement. This was his new mission. To relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That was his conclusion. And so when he came to the end of those battles, he realized that was really what was in his heart all along. That's what he was fighting for. It wasn't for the Lord. It was about his comfort. It was about his pleasure. It was just really about making life easier for him. It didn't have anything to do with the Lord or what God might desire to do in his heart. Are you battling for the Lord or for your pleasure? What are your prayers really about? What are your battles really about? If you're fighting for your pleasure and your comfort, it's not the Lord's battle. He's not in it. It's also not the Lord's battle if you find yourself fighting for an idol. Relationships, family, money, health, reputation, whatever it is, we can make an idol out of any time, anything any time that we say, I'm going to put my trust in this for my happiness instead of the Lord. Any time we say, this is the most important thing, I haven't rejected God. I haven't cut him out of the picture altogether, but it's this thing that really gets my number one. 
Anytime we do that, we make that an idol, and we, we put our trust in that, and we end up, we'll, we end up fighting some battles to protect that because we don't want to let go of that. It's become too important. And when we find ourselves fighting for an idol instead of for the Lord, we're no longer in a battle that God would be blessing. You might be wondering what God, Gideon did with that 20 kilograms of gold that, he collect, gold that he collected, right? Verse 27 tells us that Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city. It was a very foolish, but on the other hand, somewhat shrewd investment on his part. Gideon, as you know, you know that Gideon is a, is a guy that did what, right? He's the guy with the fleece. He was the guy, has, he knows how to confirm God's will. He puts out this fleece and, and is able to do that. Well, he's developed a bit of a reputation about that. People have heard the stories of that. And Gideon knows, hey, I kind of did something there that was kind of, that was kind of amazing. People, people li- liable to talk about something like that. So he takes that reputation and says, I could, I could kind of mass, uh, mass produce that, uh, that same uh, thing that happened with me and the fleece, and I'll do it with a really fancy ephod. Or it was kind of like a, uh, a, a, breast, a breastplate that would uh, be very ornate. It was, had all kinds of gold in it. But most importantly, the, an ephod would have these uh, two stones that would be used to answer yes-no questions uh, about God's will. You didn't need, however, 20 kilograms of gold to make an ephod. And, so, and since it's, it never suggests that Gideon actually wore this, I don't, I don't, think, I don't think he was uh, energetic enough, frankly, to wear the ephod and have people coming to him for answers. I think he hung it somewhere, and because he had 20 kilograms of gold, likely, it says he uh, put it in his city, probably hung it on a gold religious statue of some kind. And so people would come there, pay some money to him to get some discernment, to to be able to uh, understand what God might uh, be trying to say. Now, there was already an ephod for discerning God's will. That ephod was in Jerusalem. That ephod was worn by the high priest that God had appointed. But Gideon, by setting up this ephod of his own in his own hometown, he essentially makes Ophrah, his hometown, a new capital, a new center. It will become, for him, a power play, an investment strategy a way to ensure that he and all those associated with him will be well taken care of because now they are at the center of a new place of, uh, of worship and, and idolatry. Verse 27 describes the impact made by Gideon's ephod. It says, And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. I need to tell you, honestly, my first reaction when I read the verses, I want to reach for another translation and say, is there a more gentle way of saying this? And I think it's deliberately in there because it's a word that we feel repulsed by. At least I do. Uh, It's a word that you think, surely God might have like an easier way of putting this. Maybe maybe there's another translation. It's supposed to repulse us. We are supposed to be horrified by the idea of 
taking something that Gideon or anyone else has made and using that as our object of uh, devotion and discernment to God's will instead of going to God himself, instead of God, going to God's word and, res- and responding to him in the way that he has revealed to us. That repulses God when we don't do that. When we, he compares it to spiritual prostitution, spiritual adultery, and we read the verse, we read the, the, the words, and we think, this repulses me. And, and if you feel an ounce of that, it is just an ounce compared to what God feels when we do that in our lives. When we put other things in the place that only he deserves. What started off as an idol alongside the true God, then as you get to the next generation, we learn in verse 33, becomes a total rejection of God. In verse uh, 34, it says, they can't even remember the God who delivered them from the hand of Midian. Like, the true God is, is not even on the radar of the next generation. They've forgotten him. They're full on back to Baal worship. And it started because Gideon introduced something that could be in place of God. Just put alongside the true God. Use the same words, but the heart was very different. And you see that idolatry in one generation only expands and grows in the next generation. And it's a call for all of us to Uh, examine our hearts and ask whether there are things that we have put in God's place, whether there are ways that we are trusting in in people or things or uh, or ideas that, that we have put in the place that only God deserves. The power of an idol only tends to increase with generations. So we've seen that God gives us courage to step up to the battles that he leads us into. But we need discernment to figure out, is this a battle from the Lord or is this mostly just about me? Is this something that he doesn't really have any part of and he doesn't want me to have any part in? What are the battles in your life really about? Are they about your pride? Are they about insults? Are they about teaching someone a lesson? Because the Lord's not in those battles and the scriptures warn us God opposes the proud. He will stand in our way. He will oppose us. Or are your battles really about your pleasure and your comfort? Are you fighting for more privileges and bigger barns? Because those are not battles that the Lord is leading us into. That's not what it's about. Are your battles really about the idols in your life? Are there things that are more important to you than God? And you're fighting to hold on to them. You're fighting, fighting to protect them. Fighting to keep them. Even though in your heart you recognize, I've put this thing or this person in the place that only God deserves. We're in a spiritual battle and we need to step up to it. And the fact is that left to ourselves, you and I know that we would regularly choose some battles that we would say, They're stupid, they're about me, and they have nothing to do with the Lord. Left to ourselves, we would regularly walk into battles that would bring about our destruction. They would rob our joy, they would rob our peace, 
lead us in paths that are, could only be described as foolish. But the good news is that we're not alone. We aren't alone in any of our battles. And in fact, the scripture reveals that there is someone who goes into a battle for us. He fights on our behalf and he fights for us. Jesus was constantly being attacked. He was constantly being ridiculed, insulted, and misunderstood. And when you look at Jesus' life and ministry, you realize he could have had his entire life consumed with those battles. He could have chased down every last person who misunderstood and insulted his pride. And out of love for you, he chose not to get involved in those battles. He didn't take them on because there was a more important battle for your soul and for my soul, for our salvation that was more important to him. Jesus could have battled for his comfort, right? He could have battled for riches, at comfort for pleasure, and there would have been no one to oppose him. In fact, Satan was deliberately trying to heap those things onto him to get him off mission. And Jesus chose not to fight for those things. In fact, he was the one who left heaven for us and said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Didn't even have a place to live. He was crashing at other people's homes. Jesus could have battled for idols. He could have fought for trivial things. He could have even fought for good things, but ultimately weren't the main thing. And he chose not to get involved in those battles because he had a more important battle and the battle was for you. The battle was for all of us. A battle for our salvation, a battle for our maturity, a battle for our rescue. The battle was so important to him that it's, at, at one point, the scriptures record, he sweat dri drips of blood pouring out his heart, seeking our best. And in obedience to the Father, he fought for us. He continues to, continues to fight. He continues to stand as our advocate at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, praying for us. And because of him, we have hope. Because of him, we're never alone in a battle. Because of, our, because of him, we recognize that left to ourselves, I would walk into some really stupid battles. And, I, and, and because of him, when I, when I do walk into those stupid battles, I, I know I have someone with the strength and help to pick me up and to walk back into the, the will of God for my life. So let's lay down the battles that aren't worthy of him. And let's enter into the battle that he would set before us the battle that he is involved in for things that are essential, crucial in our lives for God's glory. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would make the word of God and this message real to us this morning. We're all in battles of various kinds and Sometimes we start off in your battles and end up in battles that you want no part of. 
And so we pray that you would open our eyes to discern the difference between the two. Help us to know when to stop. Help us to remember where to devote our energies. Help us to remember the one who fights for us. And thank you for the way Jesus fights to protect us and uphold us and bring us to you. Our hope is in him. And so we offer up this prayer in his powerful name. In Jesus' name, amen.